in Connecticut, and he lived in Los Angeles. I got an amicable divorce six months later, and Jean and I lived together on and off for the next two and a half years. My new career became getting him to marry me. More often than not, I had on a white frilly apron like Catherine Hepburn in Woman of the Year when she left her job to exclusively be Spencer Tracy's wife. Unfortunately, my performing ego wasn't completely content in an apron, and in every screenplay Gene was writing or project he had under development, I finagled my way into a part. We were married in the south of France because Gene loved France. If he could have been born French, that would have been his dream. Tennis is another joy of Gene's life, so I took lessons in California for $35 an hour twice a week. I bought a Prince racket and some perky Chris Everett-type outfits and learned to hit the ball. Gene was infinitely patient with me, hitting balls to me while I clutched all over the court. I wanted to be married to Gene, but it sure wasn't my tennis game that got him. Being interested in sports was one of the things Gene wanted in a woman. In the years I lived alone, I loved having sports on the television in the background because it made me feel that there were men in the house. But I never sat down and watched it. With Gene, I became a basketball fan. L.A. Lakers, of course. Not long after Gene and I took our first trip to France, we broke up. Gene said he was suffocating, that my needs were smothering him. I was heartsick and back in Connecticut, filled with love and nowhere to put it. I decided to get a dog. My cousins in Detroit used to raise and show Yorkshire Terriers, so I made a desperate call to them to help me find a dog that was female and already housebroken and small enough so I could travel with her. They found Sparkle, glorious Sparkle with her cold, dark eyes and gray-blonde hair and her nose like a tiny black button. I quickly became one of those people who show you endless pictures of their dog and all the pictures look alike. I think dogs are the most amazing creatures. They give unconditional love. For me, they are the role models for being alive. Jean and I were split up for about five weeks, and when we got back together, it was under new conditions because it wasn't just me. It was me and Sparkle. In June of 1983, we went back to the south of France and took Sparkle with us. The French people loved dogs. They went crazy for ours. Sparkle was allowed to go everywhere with us. She ate in the restaurant, sitting on her own chair. I called it the dog's holiday. In the fall of 1983, Jean and I made our second movie together, The Woman in Red. It was a remake of a French film. There really wasn't a part in it for me, but I begged and whined and slept with the writer and the director and the star, all of whom were Jean, and I got a cameo part that turned out to be my first successful movie role. At the same time, I did promotion for a comedy book I wrote with Alan Zweibel, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana's Hey, Get Back to Work book. I still had plenty of time to get dinner on the table and involve Jean in endless conversations about commitment and meaningful relationships and child-rearing and meaningful relationships and commitment. He was still fighting for independence, and I was all for smothering suffocation. With the movie in the can, Jean and Sparkle and I were on our way for our holiday in France again. 
We were taking an early morning flight from Los Angeles to New York so we could visit Jean's sister and brother-in-law on the way. I put Sparkle down on the floor and she was running around being cute when I saw her snipping something in a corner. When I kneeled down, there were these little turquoise pellets spilling out of the box on the floor. The box clearly said, Rat Poison. We called the Poison Center, gave them the number on the box, and they told us to get her to a vet immediately. I just picked up Sparkle and said to Jean, I'm going to the vet and I'll meet you in New York later, kissed him goodbye and ran out. I flagged down a limo that was just dropping somebody off. I was panicked now, the hysterical mother, screaming, Get us to the nearest vet. We found Airport City's Animal Hospital in Inglewood and rushed the dog in. I ran in yelling, My dog ate rat poison. I was white as a ghost and Sparkle was just wagging her tail. La la la. The vet gave Sparkle an injection which caused her to throw up a turquoise pellet. She had eaten a poisonous one. When Jean got to New York, I told him that Sparkle did eat the poison, and he knew I had done the right thing. You go on to France, I said. You need the holiday, and there's nothing you can do here. I'll take care of Sparkle now, and when you get back, everything will be fine. Jean did go, but he went thinking, Well, she has definitely grown up. She's matured. I wouldn't let him out of my sight before then, and this was me acting in a very responsible way. When Jean came back from France, he gave me an engagement ring. Our cousin Buddy now refers to it as the time when Sparkle tried to commit suicide because Jean wasn't marrying Gilda. So you can see why I owed a great deal to that dog. After a successful summer release in the United States, The Woman in Red opened in Europe in the fall of 1984. The movie company sent Jean and me on a publicity tour in Europe. Of course, Sparkle came too. And between the Deauville Film Festival and interviews in Rome, we stopped in the south of France and got married. We had to climb up the cobblestone streets of a 13th century village to get to the mayor's office. After the mayor completed our wedding ceremony, we rode with some good friends to another small village and climbed the mountain to the restaurant some Danish friends of ours own. They served smoked salmon hors d'oeuvres and opened bottles of champagne and everyone toasted our marriage. Later in the evening, in the dining room of the chateau where we were staying, we had a traditional French wedding dinner. Jean had hired two musicians to come and play for us so we could dance, a guitarist and a violinist. They followed us everywhere with music, accompanying our moods. It reminded me of a French comedy. The French are not noted for their comedians. It is rare that you hear of a French woman in comedy. They called me Charlot in the subsequent articles about our marriage. Jean Wilder marries a Charlot, their word for Charlie Chaplin. When the journalist asked Jean, why didn't you marry the beautiful girl in The Woman in Red? He would always reply, I did. For almost a year before my marriage, I had stopped using any form of birth control. I figured my pregnancy was another surefire way to get Jean. But pregnancy hadn't come. After being Mrs. Wilder for a week, I drove into New York City from Connecticut to see a radiologist that my gynecologist had recommended. I had to have an x-ray technique that involves injecting a radiopaque dye in the uterus. 
The dye outlines the cavity of the uterus and the fallopian tubes to show whether the tubes are opened or blocked. I saw the dye running through my reproductive system on a closed-circuit screen in the examining room. There I was lying on a table with my legs spread apart watching the worst show I'd ever seen on television. The show was about a 37-year-old newlywed who finds out she's infertile. I remember the attending nurse looking at the screen with a long, sad face and me asking, What's wrong? And her saying, Your gynecologist will explain it to you. Then her face dropped even longer. I mean, what could be lovelier than Gilda Radner and Jean Wilder having a baby? The hair alone would make people squeal with delight. But my tubes were definitely closed. My gynecologist told me that there were a couple of routes that I could take. One was in vitro fertilization, a procedure in which an egg is removed from a ripe follicle in an ovary and fertilized by a sperm cell outside the human body, then reinserted into the uterus. The other was I could have major surgery to open the tubes, or we could adopt. Jean and I talked about our options. We both wanted a family, but Jean made it clear to me that our relationship was the most important thing to him that a baby was best off coming into the world to two people who were happy together. I had been pregnant in the early 60s and at 19 years old had had an illegal abortion that probably influenced the messy state of my reproductive organs. For the next 20 years, my priority was to finish my education and pursue my career. Now I couldn't take my fate. You'll never have a baby. In October of 1984, Jean was working on a new screenplay called Haunted Honeymoon. It took place in America in 1934 and was about a radio performer whose family tries to scare him to death. It was supposed to be a comedy chiller. Jean was to be the radio performer, and I wanted to be, what else, his wife. Jean worked every day at his office. Meanwhile, I started a screenplay with a friend. You cannot live in Los Angeles for any period of time without eventually trying to write a screenplay. It's like a flu bug that you catch. Even the plumber has a screenplay in his truck. In the meantime, I found out everything about the in vitro fertilization program at UCLA. I found a doctor who would let me into the program. In simple terms, what happens is that certain hormones are injected into you daily which make your ovaries produce more eggs than usual. The doctors watch your ovaries through ultrasound readings, and when you have produced enough eggs, they put you under general anesthesia, again, to aspirate or remove the eggs. They are then mixed with your husband's sperm in a dish or test tube outside the body, and the fertilized eggs are put back inside you in a procedure much like a regular gynecological exam. On the day my ultrasound showed I had produced enough eggs, Jean's foreplay began. While they wheeled me into surgery to aspirate the eggs, they put Jean in a little utility room by himself. There was a wash basin with a wooden shelf above it that held a small plastic container and a piece of paper with instructions for keeping the sperm sterilized. There was no chair or window in the room, but there was a mop and a bucket and a stack of Playboy and Penthouse magazines with a note that said, If you require help. Miraculously, everything worked. But a week later, I started to bleed. The doctors told me to lie down, but I wasn't just spotting. To me, it looked like someone shot a deer. 
I bled heavily for a few days and then continued to spot. They did a blood test and it was negative. There was no pregnancy. I cried right through Christmas and into 1985. By February, I had booked myself for major surgery to have my tubes opened. I had the operation, and I completely recuperated in a week's time. My tubes were open, and I was elated. All we had to do now was to have sex at exactly the moment I was ovulating. I was 38 years old, and my biological time clock was breaking the sound barrier. I bought one of those new ovulation kits where you are the scientist. The kit costs about $80 for one cycle. I didn't tell Gene I was doing this. He was already wondering about my sanity. One morning, my color chart was all set up under an appropriate light. I mixed, then waited a half hour. The dipstick in the liquid turned blue. The blue matched the blue on the chart, which meant I was ovulating. I ran into our bedroom and calmly woke up Gene and told him that we had to have sex right that second. I never let on about this expensive ovulation kit. My ovaries became the center of my universe. I would be so relieved a few days after my period when it wasn't time for fertility, so I could relax. But then as soon as I got to the middle of the cycle, the panic came in. When I got my period, it was like a death, a failure, another lost child. In April of 1985, Orion Pictures gave Gene the okay on Haunted Honeymoon to be shot in England, directed by Gene Wilder and starring Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, and Dom DeLuise. Suddenly, we faced a new dilemma. Do you want the movie or the baby? We decided to abstain from sex at the times I was ovulating. It seemed weird that after in vitro fertilization and tubal surgery and $80 ovulation kits, I, the perpetrator, was choosing to put off having a baby in order to be a movie star. But my career was still very important to me, too. We began shooting the first day of September, 1985. Over the next few weeks, I got heavily into the adventure of movie making, up before the sun and asleep by nine at night. When the weekends came, we were exhausted. But Saturdays, I did the laundry and shopped for Sunday dinner. Sometimes on Saturday nights, if we weren't too tired, we found time to make love. The weather stayed miraculously warm, and I loved being a pampered movie star and an English housewife. The shooting of Haunted Honeymoon required me to wear a wedding gown almost every day for two months. I looked like a bride all the time, and people seemed to treat me that way, too. My makeup woman did my makeup at about 6.30 every morning. I would always joke with her.